Welcome back to Don't Waste Our Future, a series of interviews about the past, present and future of waste in Ireland. In last week's episode, I spoke with Professor Barry O'Sullivan, an expert in artificial intelligence, about ways in which AI and big data can and cannot lead us towards a more sustainable future. This week, I'll be chatting with two people who work in Ringeskiddy, very close to the site where Indiver are proposing to build their incinerator. Dr. Gordon Dalton and Jody Power are both determined to stop Indiver's proposal from going ahead. But because they both work for state bodies, we need to be very clear from the beginning that their opinions are personal opinions and are not representative of the organisations that they work for. Dr. Gordon Dalton is an Ocean Renewable Energy Economics Engineer at the Marai Centre. Marai is the Marine and Renewable Energy Research Development and Innovation Centre in Ringeskiddy with over 200 researchers, working across six academic institutions and collaborating with over 45 industry partners. Gordon's speciality is techno-economics, socio-economics and business plans. Jodie Power is a Chartered Engineer, Fellow of Engineers Ireland and Fellow of the Institute of Marine Engineering Science and Technology in London. Currently, he lectures in marine engineering at the National Maritime College of Ireland in Ringeskiddy. The NMCI is Ireland's primary provider of training to those seeking careers in global commercial shipping, and it is considered world class. Jody will be running as a Green Party candidate in the upcoming local elections in Waterford East, and he is part of the Waterford Public Participation Network, or PPN. And he also served as community representative on the Waterford City Council Strategic Policy Committee for the Environment. I met Gordon and Jody in a hotel in Cork City and I set up in what appeared to be a quiet area of their closed restaurant. We got about 30 minutes into the recording and I had to stop it. There were kids in the background and people talking and walking past and waiting for taxis. It was so distracting, but it was so hard to call it at that time because we were so far in. But Gordon managed to go away and find a really quiet conference room that we were able to set up in and record again for another hour. So I very much appreciate their patience with that one. And so here is the interview. So Gordon, we'll start with you. And um, could you tell us about your, I suppose, your, the, your background with the whole incinerator proposal in Cork? My background, I'm a, I'm a senior researcher in the Maori Research Centre, which is 500 metres away from the proposed Indiver uh, site. My initial knowledge of it was when, when I was in Australia 10 years ago, I heard that Cork Harbour and Cove were battling their second time for this incinerator. And I just, my sympathies went for them, I was, I was very far away. But as chance hadn't happened, I, I came back to Ireland 10 years ago and I got a position in what was the Hydraulics and Maritime Research Centre in Togar. And I have relatives in Cove who, who were part of the Chase endeavour to battle the incinerator. And you know, again, I was very admiring of them, but I lived in the city and I, 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 you know, I just supported them in principle, but I didn't get actively involved. My centre then relocated to Ringskiddy to merge with the Coastal Maritime Centre with a large grant from the government, 20 million with reason to be beside the National Maritime College, as well as the naval base, to, to trigger innovation. So it was a big experiment to bring new business, new innovation in the knowledge economy down to the harbour. Within six months of the centre opening six years ago, Indiver announced they're going to put in the third um, application. And I knew immediately that I was facing trouble here. Uh, that this beautiful centre, which had opened, which is a flagship for the country, and everyone was very proud of it, was under threat, hugely under threat from both the health perspective, but also reputational damage. So I decided, well, I'm here. I, I should 
do my part and get actively involved. So I, I reached out to Chase, um, Mary Leary, who is very inspirational, read the documents as much as I could, as I'm not a, a technical engineer in waste incineration. I then found out that, that Jody Power is an expert in it and next door in the, in the Maritime College, reached out to him and he brought me uh, up to speed on, on a lot of aspects. And so together then we, we, we decided to, to get a collective effort to try and have a, an academic participation in what was going to be the public hearing. So we filled out our objections. We knew that we couldn't voice as representative of the centres because they're a public body and we couldn't represent a public body. So we, we represented ourselves as individuals who were employees of the centre. And we also gathered other academics who could help prove that this incineration process was flawed. Not only flawed, but also that the material that they had presented was not prepared correctly or perhaps was incorrect. So the public hearing has happened, and, and since the public hearing has happened, the, the, the Dublin incinerator has opened. The enormous plume that it produces has justified my absolute terror of what's going to happen when that Inver site opens in Cork. The explosion that happened in Netherlands uh, afterwards as well, um, and the cover-up and, and the toxicity that from the plume that emerged there, there's a very realistic chance that this is going to happen in Cork. It's just a matter of time. My own personal opinion is that if Indivers Incinerate does go ahead, that my position at Mare has to be questioned. I, I don't think I could stay there. Uh, it, it would, in my own personal opinion, be crazy to stay. Uh, I'll have to consider my options. Jody, then you're, you're just over the road then from Gordon. Yes, but, I am. Um, just a little bit closer to the proper side. Are you in the same ship <laughs> um, that you will leave <laughs> the incinerator is Oh, I shouldn't be laughing. Of course, well, I'm leaving. I have a couple of more years to go before I retire. So I'm. by the time it's built, I will probably be retired. But I'm adamant that I will do everything in my power to make sure it doesn't happen before I do leave because I live in Waterford. So whatever happens or comes out, the prevailing winds coming from the southwest, Waterford will be the recipient eventually of the waste that are emitted into the air from there. So it's in my interest as well to make sure that uh, we don't suffer from that. But also to protect, uh, we have a huge duty of care to our students and to our reputation. Uh, the National Maritime College, that people come from all over the country and from abroad, okay, to study here. And to have an incinerator right at 100 meters from our front gate, it's just, <laughs> it's, it doesn't, it beggars belief that this could actually happen where the government has spent 50 million developing our college, 20 million developed the Maritime Research Center next door, and to put a dirty, filthy, smelly, toxic incinerator right at the front door, beggars belief, I just unbelievable. I told you before we started that I kind of say some of the things that I've heard that people have said to me that I've, I've no response to because I, I, I just don't know what the answer is. So one person who works in Ringeskiddy said, there are already loads of incinerators in Ringeskiddy, so what difference will it make to have another one? What's your response to that? Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, there we've had, there's five big pharmaceutical plants there and they each take care of some waste, some of the toxic waste through incineration. They call it a thermal oxidization process. But we do know from what goes on in those factories that we have a Pacific product that's been incinerated. When we incinerate a Pacific product, we thermally oxidate, oxidate it, we know exactly what the emissions are going to be from that incinerator. 
so we can monitor that and check it and, and hopefully the EPA are doing their job on that and see what their records are. They must, by law, record all their emissions okay, and make sure all their filtering systems or whatever it is, are pro we're protected from those emissions. So we know precisely what's coming out. The technology is also very good now to clean what is coming out because there's only one pollutant that they need to clean. So the, the technology is there and it's improving all the time and, and Ireland is got good EPA regulations that will monitor those, those, those chemical files. And then another thing a friend said to me, and you, you brought this up, Gordon, was the, the Dublin thing. And, and he said, well, sure, like there's an incinerator in Dublin. They would never have let that go ahead. But what would you say to that? All I can say is that uh, the, the fact that that got to go ahead, it's absolutely horrendous. There was a huge fight, from the, especially from the people from the Ringsend area and from Irish Town to stop it from happening. I know the Green Party and particularly John Gormley, who was Minister for the Environment at the time when he was in the government with Fianna Fáil before it collapsed and we had the downturn, was adamant about that would never go ahead and there was legal challenges put to it all the time. Um, so it was never going to happen as long as he was in power. But unfortunately, as soon as Fine Gael came into power, the first thing they did was to overturn what John Gormley and most educated people know to be a toxic waste incinerator is not the place for the, the, the middle of the city. And, uh, and of course the whole thing, uh, it was overturned and eventually it got, uh, it got built, unfortunately. Uh, perhaps during the story I'll go into as to why I would be opposed to and what I see what's happening up there. And it's obvious for everybody to see what's happening up there is totally unac unacceptable. But um, as I say, through my story, I'll, I'll go into that, okay, in further detail as we talk about it, yeah. So it is scary. I'm, I'm obviously terrified of myself because I live in the area, but I just find that a lot of people just feel like it's, it's, there's too much to know about this, and the people who make the decisions are hopefully making the right decisions for us, and it's kind of, it's, it's hard to believe that they might not be, but like, what would the reasons for them not to is it just the easy way out? Is burning things just... It's, it's a little bit more than that. It's big business. It's business taking over. It's corruption. And it's also misinformation. And it's, in particular, it's ignorance. General public apathy or ignorance that this is an issue, that if it's taken care of, it's out of sight, it's out of mind, then we don't have to worry about it anymore. But hopefully you'll realize after I finish it tonight that we're creating a monster. We're creating a much bigger problem now by using incineration as a means of waste disposal than if we took proper care of it right now, recycle, reuse, do whatever thing, but don't incinerate it, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, up to 1998, an enormous amount of our waste was uh, thrown into landfills and it was totally unacceptable. It was an environmental damage that, at the t you know, it need we needed to change. At the time, recycling wasn't really as, as 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 efficient or as well known. So the only other option at the time, I think, or, or possibly might have been incineration, and it was very popular in the United States. So, because of of public opposition to major infrastructures, they they brought in the Strategic Infrastructure Bill to enable right, these large controversial uh, infrastructures to go ahead. So since two thousand and three, then this this legislation has been used to, to uh, probably and has resulted in the Dublin incinerator going ahead. Um, 
What's happened in the meantime, though, is that that recycling has become a very realistic and feasible way of assisting. To, to we can get up to seventy to eighty into ninety percent recycling, and then there's there's composting coming in. It's all becoming hugely popular, um, and we might even get to zero waste. But if incineration is brought in, it's an easy way for humans to say, "Oh well, what's the point in recycling?" We're almost going to be encouraged mm -hmm. to consume plastic to feed this monster, as Jolie says. Um, and we are going instead of going better at, at recycling, becoming uh, environmentally friendly, we'll actually be incentivized to not to not. And not only that, but it certainly did come out when I questioned the Inverter chairperson and his experts at the oral hearing. When I asked them to what happens when we got a slow burn and how do you improve your efficiency of the plant and I said do you use what people segregate out in the everyday household rubbish and the answer put to him five times that question was put to him and he was obviously that he wasn't going to answer it so that's exactly what happens when you segregate your waste at home you wash out your plastics and your papers and you put it all into your recycles it goes to the incinerators in the country in Delique and in Dublin to assist in the combustion efficiency when they get a poor combustion mass taken place, they can shove this really combustible stuff in to augment the actual combustion process. So you think, and they call it recycling. Wow. But, right, and they, I, think, I think I've seen a few times that Indiver has said that they won't ever import waste. Is, is that one of the conditions that the, they'll just use I'm sure waste? they have no intention of importing waste now. But who's to say things won't change? 10 months from now, 10 years from now, or whatever. Business is business, and if you can find a profit, and by the way, Mr. Inverter, John, okay, he'll be retired okay, in 10 years' time, so there'll be different people at the helm, so on different circumstances or whatever it is, and they'll change overnight. And if we just can't, how can you, you can't bank on that, that's for sure, that there'll never be imported of waste. There's always the opportunity to do that. And I say, when I talk about it later, about my visits to Denmark and to Sweden, and have a look at incinerators there, that's exactly what they were doing there. Mm -hmm. The frightening thing is that these companies are going to have very locked tight uh, legal contracts. And these contracts will be that they must be provided with X amount of waste, and if they're not consuming uh, X amount of waste or making X amount of profit, then the taxpayer will either have to pay subsidy to support that, that, that loss, or that they will probably have to be allowed to import. And, and the Cork incinerator at the moment is adamantly saying they will never import. Um, the, the, their business model is purely to service the Irish waste problem. Um, but if Ireland can't service their waste, and it's in their contract that they must have X amount of waste, either we pay them a fine or they, we allow them to import. Uh, if you don't mind me coming in, that's called a put or play clause, okay? Put or pay. pay. So us, the taxpayer, will have to supplement their profit margins if they don't reach the profit margins that were forecast in the contract when they signed the contract. And is importing waste, did we take port, uh, waste from Northern Ireland, is that importing waste? Or is it part of the all-Ireland economy that we're trying to do? I just, uh, I just can't believe that uh, they're putting it forward that way. In addition to this, they, they're going to be signing a 30 by 30 lease. Um, mm. So, they, they, yeah. So it's 30, with an option to 30, of course they'll take it, especially if they're going to be paid for losses. Uh, uh, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a very long time. And 
you know, we're supposed to be going for zero wastes Correct. In, by 2050, okay. uh, total renewable energy, renewable economy, and yet we, it, it, we're going to be having a, a, a circular toxic, economy, yeah, yeah, a circular economy where everything goes a circle. But let's face it, if we recycle the recyclables, that's all the plastic, yeah. the paper, the wood, um, the organics, what's left to burn? There's nothing left to burn if it's done properly. So unless there's organic material going into the incinerator, it's, it can, nothing can burn. So it's, it's inorganic, it doesn't burn. So it just goes to show you, you know, either it's totally, they're mutually exclusive, recycling, reuse, okay, uh, and, and the proper way of dealing with waste stream and incineration are mutually exclusive. If you have one, you destroy the other. Okay, so if we have proper recycling and reuse, there is nothing to feed an incinerator. So, both of you were heavily involved with the oral hearing, which was a year ago, was it, or two years ago? Two years uh, ago. May, May 2002, two years ago. I finally got my head around this, I think. Um, I thought that the judicial review, like the, the, I suppose the reason that I wanted to make this podcast was to, to help inform people so that we could have a grassroots change, but that was what the oral, I'm too late, basically, I'm, that was what the oral hearing was for. Now we're going into judicial review land, which means that it's just the legal technicalities of uh, Indivers, sorry, application that are being kind of tested and stuff like that. So is, is, is there really, if the public all rise up, if, if there's just an overnight collective conscious change and we all decide tomorrow, okay, we're going to stop using bags and throwing them out immediately after, like, is there nothing we can do now? Is it so far in the legal system that there's, there's no... If, if there was a proper recycling system in this country, there'd be no need for it, number one. So it's up to government to put things in place to encourage people to produce plastics that can be recycled, to produce paper and, and cardboard that can be recycled every time. Okay, it's up to the government okay, to put in place all these to encourage people to change. It's up to the government okay, to educate people as to what's going on and not bury their head in the sand and play on the apathy and the ignorance of people. It's up to the people, like in the water protest, the water meter protest, it's up to the people to put public pressure on government, on ministers, because the vote is the most important thing to motivate a politician. If the poli That's just why Simon Coveney, Micheál Martin, Michael McGrath, Sherlock, okay, Sean Sherlock, all the local politicians here for this constituency where the incinerators are going to be were adamant at the public hearing that the incinerator should never be located there, it should never be part of the, the the waste management plan of Ireland, but yet they're in government and this thing is happening, so I'm saying to myself, oh, this is totally frustrating, mm -hmm. absolutely frustrating. And then I know like a lot of people in Cork City feel like, well, you know, that's, a, that's an East Cork kind of Cove Harbour problem, we're too far away from it. Is that true? Well, the oral hearing, we, we uh, were very lucky to get Paul Leahy from UCC, who volunteered to do a study and look at the, the, the impact of the plume that would come out from the, the smokestack. Um, but more importantly, the, 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 one of the many unique features about the Inverse side is that there's a wind turbine right behind it. Uh, and there's no, well, there's very few studies that have looked at the impact of what a wind turbine will do to the turbine. Will it, will it mix it mix it up? Will will the, the nice beautiful plume, which is supposed to go straight out up the atmosphere, actually be uh, impacted to actually hit the ground uh, as a result of it? And he proved that it would. 
with his with his turbulence modeling and he also showed that it would it would hit the ground at around monkstown to cove and spray spray all the way around um, and uh, there are other studies as joey says that it will reach up to 25 kilometers depending on the wind and paul lee showed in, in his in his presentation also that the uh, when the wind is directly behind the wind turbine or which is a southerly or directly in front of it with a northerly has the highest impact so that's Know, straight to Cove or straight across Avon. Correct. Uh, we also know from the studies done in America, in fact, when the incineration process was first proposed in Ireland going back into the late 1990s and the early noughties, uh, Professor Paul Connors and Chase were very much part of bringing him to Ireland to educate people as to what incineration was all about. And he's a physicist from the University of New York, where he was as he's retired now, and because of incineration in his area in New York and the fight that they had against it. And as a physicist, he was able to go in to do the proper studies into exactly what's happening with incinerators. But his research, and it's out there in the research lands, but his research showed that the fallout from stacks okay, of incinerators will have a reach of up to 30 kilometers okay, from a radius around the actual incinerator. So the whole of Cork City, depending on which way the wind blows, is vulnerable to the emissions from here. Also, the nanoparticles, that is the very small particles, that's 10 to the minus nine. That's one millionth of a million millimeter, okay, in diameter. These are the, the very small particles like dioxin, PCBs, and furans, which are nanomolecules. Those go into the air and they'll be carried with the wind to England, to Europe, to wherever, anywhere downstream, Waterford, okay, in particular. So. And the nanoparticles, okay, as you're saying, these are the most toxic particles known to man if it's dioxin, PCBs, and purines. But we also have lots of other, okay, chemicals in there. And they're not just, they're just the really, really nasty stuff. But nanoparticles, when you breathe them in, they go straight into your lungs, and they go from your lungs into your bloodstream, and from your bloodstream into your organs, and into your organs, into the DNA, the very structure of human life, of who we are. They go into the DNA. We do not know at this stage what happens inside the DNA because it's, we're only down to 10 to the minus minus nanoparticle at the moment. When we get to peak oil levels, now we'll be able to see exactly what's happening. But we do know the results of what happens when we destroy the cells that we have. Cancers, we have all sorts of problems, all right? And we have problems with kids born with no legs, no arms, or whatever. And who said this? There was a very, a very famous professor. Okay, he's still actually with us, and he's living in Northern Ireland at the moment. Professor Vivian Howard, who's a toxicologist and epidemiologist, okay, from the John Moore's Liverpool University, and he came in and he talked about what happens to heavy metals, okay, toxins in our system, and how they actually break down the human DNA and to lead to the problems that that are so prevalent in society. The cancers are everywhere. All right, and Cove unfortunately already has, because of the Irish steel and the toxic amount is in Holbull and is dealing with 150% more than the, the average around the country in cancers. So that's not good. And to put another thing on top of that is <laughs> lethal. That goes back to, to one of your earlier questions. What's the difference between uh, a pharmaceutical incinerator and this new Indiver? Well, as Jody says, only one chemical goes into a pharmaceutical in, in, incinerator. And if it's done properly, should be cleaned properly and, and uh, with, with modern technology and minimum impact. 
my understanding, my simple understanding of an incinerator, uh, a modern toxic or municipal waste incinerator, is that it's just everything is thrown in there. Uh, and I mean everything from household waste. That's a normal municipal waste. And for a toxic waste incinerator, it's everything plus some toxic, you know, I mean, they're called toxic waste, but they're burning 25% of the material is toxic waste. And my understanding as well is that if you burn plastics and household waste, it's already incredibly toxic. Plastic, if you burn plastic, there's there's un, a huge number of contaminants, which Jody's going to talk about, the constituent, constituents of it. But essentially, you, you're just throwing an unknown quantity of unknown material, non-segregated, so that you don't have specific processes to, to burn and, and collect specific um, toxins that you know will come out maybe out of one material. Yeah. But if you just throw everything all into one kiln, burn the hell out of it, and then hope that you're going to capture everything through modern or, or not so modern technology, as Jody will talk about. All I know is that I've put plastic into the oven by accident a couple of times, and you have to leave the house. Like, there, you, there's no staying in it for the rest of the evening. It stinks. I don't know what happens, but... Look, polyvinyl chloride, PVC, mm -hmm. it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Yeah. When you burn that, the chlorine element of it, the combustion of chlorine will produce dioxin, PCBs, and furans. We know that for a fact. You know about the big scare in Belgium a couple of years ago? Irish meat that it cost a billion. It was just oil being used to cool a transformer in County Fermanagh. Uh, the oil, part of an additive oil, would be chlorine, okay, and some other toxic uh, uh, materials in with the oil to make oil what it is, really useful material. But they were using it, okay, to dry waste food from restaurants and hotels around the Dublin, Wicklow, Wexford area. And what they did is they mix it all into a vat with water, break it all up, and mix it into a swill. And then on a conveyor, an open conveyor, they'll convey it across, but they have flames going across the top of the conveyor to dry this. And by the time it comes to the end of the conveyor, it's into a powder form. They bag it, and they ship it off to Belgium to feed pigs. Unfortunately, there's only a small amount of oil okay, in this transformer. We're talking 20 litres, 25, 30 litres, right? But that was enough when they incinerated it, okay, when they burnt it in this, the burners in this oven to dry out this food, that they impregnated it with PCBs, which is part of the chlorine, when you combust chlorine. When the animals were slaughtered in Belgium, they tested the meat before it went for public consumption, and sure enough, it was contaminated with PCBs just from one small little transformer in County Fermanagh. And that caused all the meat that came from that factory or whatever it is was destroyed. And they were able to trace it back all the way to this waste place in uh, Wicklow, okay, that got the oil from this transformer in County Fermanagh. That's how insidious it is. One small little transformer, badly treated, not recycled or not reused properly incinerated and it cost a billion euros worth of problems huge reputational damage to ireland and the food industry that we have here so it's just one little thing that, okay. that oil will be one of the constituents that will that is a toxic yeah. material that they'll be putting into the incinerator oil so so like oh, anything. actually tell me that because it, it, it says a municipal waste incinerator yes, it sounds very kind of innocent dublin municipal. is municipal cork is municipal and toxic, toxic. waste yeah. 
And what, what's toxic? Everything. A toxic could be from a chemical factory. It could be from anywhere, okay, industry. And toxic just means the waste that's coming out of there once you combust it is lethal to human beings, okay? So they're saying that they have all the uh, filters and all the safeguards there that it could never come into the public domain. But we now know that there's no filtration system in the world yet devised to be able to filter out the nanoparticles, that the very small particles, okay, as I talked about before, that are emitted. There's no filter in the world that can filter them out. They just go straight into the atmosphere and we breathe them in. Would, would masks no, on our mouth? No, no, no. Oh, These are so small. They go straight into our DNA. Uh, the most electron microscopes you need to be able to get to that level. And micro, so we're talking micro, okay? It's a million, it's a thousand times smaller than micro. It's in the air, the aerosols in the air that we're breathing in. When you say changing our DNA, like what, what, what I think of is like, I don't know, are we going to become these green super, will we become mutants? Is that what it's it is? It's a mutation, it, it's a mutation of the basic chain of life. And this is why in Vietnam to this day, we do know children are still being born from the contamination of Agent Orange, which is dioxin, PCBs and furans, that molecule, that strain of molecules. We do know people today are still born deformed because of the stuff that's in the ground. They grow plants and they grow food, and when they eat the protein, it goes into their DNA and the rest is serious trouble. For and there's no way to say that maybe they're not coming out and maybe it's actually, maybe maybe it's fine. Like, there's, like you have so much evidence that it would be almost incra How crazy to say if, that. If like. the plume coming from there, okay, spreads the water, for instance, and now we have a cluster of, 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 of eggs, of uh, cancers in water, just around wherever the west of Waterford, wherever it is, and spreading as it goes east, who's going to prove where it came from? That could have come from anywhere, all right? Well, I, I have to put my, my house for sale now. <laughs> um, I'll just try and think of the other things that... Now, the I'd like said. to tell you my story. Remember Please do, of course, before, of course. Yeah, yeah. before we get out of here, okay? Copenhagen on the ship. They, they yes, that's what I'm coming to now. I mean, this, basically, I got started at this when I first came back from America. I lived in America for a while. But before that, I was an engineer, mechanical engineer, marine engineer with Shell Oil Company. And very much part of the uh, my job was combustion engineering for propulsion, producing steam, high-pressure steam for steam turbines and that. And so I was very familiar with the combustion process. When I first came back from America, um, I heard that they were planned to build an incinerator in Waterford City, and I thought, ooh, that sounds great. So you're burning waste, and you're going to get produce a bit of energy from it, and that sounds a win-win situation to me. You get rid of the waste, and we're going to produce like electricity. Uh, subsequently, okay, from talking to a few engineers around the place, I realized that what looked to be something really good, a common sense thing to do, was a lot more insidious than what was on the cover. Once you opened up the book and you found out exactly what was happening, what the combustion process, and the results of the combustion process, it soon became apparent that this was absolutely the wrong way to go. So from that, okay, I became uh, chairperson, actually, of the Waterford City Community Forum, which now is the PPN network around in the early times, so chairperson of that, but I was also the SPC, uh, Strategic Policy Committee for Waterford City, and I was the environmental rep on that. And as the environmental rep, I was invited with city councillors to go and visit incinerators in Denmark and Sweden, 
okay, by the RPS company. They're a consultancy company within the managing, selling, building of incinerators. And they've been doing that in Denmark for a long, long time. In fact, they've been the combustion process of waste in Denmark has been going on for 120 years, a fact that they're very proud of. So, yes, uh, I, I went on this trip uh, with councillors, and I was actually horrified what I saw. Uh, people went with the idea, oh, it's nice and clean, the area is nice and clean, the streets are nice, the people are well behaved, everything seemed really calm. But when you see, and you go into the harbour down, and there's five incinerators all around the main harbour of Copenhagen, we were taking on two of them. Every time I asked questions of the people that were there, now we were there as a fact-finding mission to see was this going to be great for the people of Waterford to have an incinerator. And, and from where they were talking is, this is the best thing since sliced bread. But when I asked them silly little questions, like for instance, how much CO2 is going to be produced if you're producing or burning 450,000 tonnes of mass waste, municipal waste, how much CO2? you be producing, and as you know, CO2, the global warming baseline. The more CO2 that you produce, global warming becomes a, major, a more prob bigger problem. And when it's five incinerators around the place and another one just across the water in Gothenburg, the amount of CO2 that's being produced in Denmark is huge. So the, the obfuscation of, of, of the questions and not answering the questions are there really kind of mm, struck a bit alarm bells were going on. But unfortunately, what I was really upset about was the councillors that came with me on a fact-finding mission were more interested in the jollies of going to a restaurant and going to the bar and being brought out, entertained, than they were about finding what they went over there in the first place. And I say that because I was actually encouraged not to ask questions, which was, <laughs> I couldn't believe. Anyway, I asked a few questions. Um, one of them, okay, was saying this. Oh, there was some talk about they had problems with uh, with with emissions, okay, and the thing. And before I went there, I realized and I found out that you can only have one kilogram of fish, if you cons to be consumed human consumption, if you take it from the Baltic Sea. So the Baltic Sea is quite contaminated. So I asked them. One kilogram at a time, is it? Oh, uh, one kilogram per month. Per month. One oh, kilogram yeah. per month. Okay. So basically a fish, a half a fish, if it's a decent sized fish, okay, a month to eat. Um, I asked him, well, what was the problem? How did you solve the problem of your emissions? Oh, we just increased the height of the stack. So in other words, then we blew it further downstream so that it didn't affect the local area so nobody could pinpoint it back to us that this was an issue. Plus I asked him, uh, when you get the bottom ash, where do you do it? And this plan of the... The place that they were showing us, they showed me a whole mound of bottom ash and it was placed in the harbour and the harbour was very low so there's, when the high tide or small tide was there, there was very little stop waves from washing. So I asked them, if you had a flood, how is that bottom ash protected? That is toxic waste, isn't it? So yes, we, we, we dedicate that, that's toxic waste. So we said, how do you take care of that? Mm, uh, we're not worried about it. Okay, that was the attitude. So I came there saying, this is a, this is a joke. And then uh, the RPS then took us on a visit to where the bottom ash was processed. Okay. Bottom ash now is kind of compacted, burned No, it's not stuff. compacted. No, oh, it's just burned. If you have a ton of rubbish and you shove it into an incinerator, you're going to generate about one third of a ton or a quarter of a ton of 
the west the waste left over just the, the crinkles like that you get on the bottom of a fire if you got a fire at home the ash that's left but the ash that's left if you burn turf it's all goes away fly ash but this stuff is just crinkly because you've got all sorts in there and it's all just a mush all right a mush and as it comes from the incinerator on a hopper okay on an archimedes screw type hopper type system then it's sprayed with water to cool it right down and it goes straight into a truck and the truck brings it to this treatment center which is the compound not too far away but always next to a harbor a river or the ocean okay one or the other always you see Covantes is in Dublin right next to a river the proposed one here is right next to a harbor okay and Dilik I think is next to a river as well so what happened there and I was asking him now you class this as toxic waste it's left out in the open and how long would you leave it in the open for? We leave it there for two to three months. And I said, why would you leave it there that long? And I said, well, that's how we process it. And then we can use it and then take it and we use it for road fill. This was in the early noughties, right? Since then, I think they've stopped that. Sounds like uh, a great solution though. My mum said that. My mum was like, they're going to make roads. I was going to be great. But no. But not at all, because I asked them then that everybody that came, anybody that came to remove that stuff, they must sign a form to say that they're taking toxic waste so and, and I saw the form they gave me a copy of the form said that's not a couple but I couldn't get over how truthful they were in that process but they weren't they were avoiding the, the other questions that they were giving. so they gave me a form to show me yeah look see they have to sign here that is toxic waste so, so I can drive up and fill yeah, my car yeah, with toxic yeah, waste yeah, 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 yeah. but it had been it had been there for three months but at this time most of the toxicity would have leached out of it or drained out of it or washed out of it because if you leave something in the rain long enough water will go down through it it will wash out the chemicals and water being a universal solvent if there's any solvent there of whatever it is it'll be soluble in the water the water will take them and it then drain the water out collect it in a little pot check it every day to see what the Where's volume of contaminants are in it does it go into the harbor and then straight into the harbor and straight into the harbor that's exactly what they're doing in Covantes in dublin right now Okay, straight into the harbor. Now, what's in the bottom ash that makes it toxic? And I think the answer to that came uh, a couple of years ago in a port called Davenport, Devonport in the UK. Um, a ship took, took a cargo on board and there was subsequently an accident. A fire broke out because the stuff was quite, whatever happened to you, anyway, the conflagration, it was pretty bad. People were injured. And there was a marine accident investigation board and went in to investigate as to why this happened. And the conclusions were of that accident. Number one, the cargo that was specified for the vessel was a cargo called U-1BA or IBA. Right? Now, the captain, when asked, had no idea what it was, but that was the specification for it. It was untreated bottom ash from an incinerator in southern England. So in other words, they took it straight from the incinerator. They didn't leave it out in the harbor for three and a half months or whatever it is. They took it straight there after maybe a couple of days or whatever, put it on this ship, and this was being shipped to Germany all right, for disposal. When the accident happened, the marine investigation people went in and did a complete analysis of the cargo. Mm -hmm. And they found it of the bottom ash. And let me just read you some of the constituents that were in that bottom ash. Uh, if I start at the top, have you got a few minutes? Yeah. <laughs> we can start off with aluminium, antimony, arsenic, barium, beryllium, barone, cadmium, calcium, chromium, total, 
chromium-6. You remember Aaron Brockovich? Cobalt, copper, iron, lead, lithium, magnesium, manganese, mercury, molybdenum, nickel, phosphorus, potassium, selenium, silver, sodium, strontium, thallium, tin, titanium, vanadium, zinc, cyanide-free, cyanide-total, fluoride, and ammonical nitrogen. Now, these are all in parts per million, okay? Uh, we see here, for instance, the cadmium was 6.4 parts per million. Now, a parts per million, okay, 10 to the minus 6 tons is very small. But when you've got a cargo of 4,000 tons on board a ship, that's 4 million kilograms. You multiply the 4 million by the 6.4 parts per million. Or the other one here, what have we got? The nice one here, the chromium, the total chromium in there. That was at <laughs> that was at 116 parts per million. So of 4 million kilograms, that came to 464 kilograms. Okay? 464 kilograms in that waste. And now that's just chromium, right? Mercury. Mercury, there was 1.76 kilograms in that cargo. And mercury, we know, is a heavy metal. Lead is a heavy metal. Okay, uh, magnesium. Okay, heavy mer mercury, a heavy metal. And heavy metals, okay, as we know, when they get into the human chain, they get into the human system, when we breathe them in, they go again, like what I said before, they're nanoparticles. They go right into our DNA and destroy our DNA from the inside. And that's what causes cancers and all the problems then that leads from that. So that's a litany of what we have in bottom ash. And for to take something that's non-toxic and to provide a way <clears throat> to provide a way to try and get rid of it, to create something that's toxic and to create something that's polluting our air, because there's no filter known to man that can take out these nanoparticles. They're too small. They're aerosols, they're going to the air. There's none they so to take something that's non-toxic but a hindrance and to turn it into something that is toxic, but a smaller volume, that now we have to gather and put it into a pit in Germany, because it's toxic, okay? And the fly ash that we take out now goes into the same toxic pit. All right. What's fly ash? Fly, the stuff that's coming from the stack, okay. the very small stack. Oh, what the filter collects. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. The filters collect or whatever it is there. They're in filter bags or whatever it is. So that's all shaken out. It's hermetically sealed. And that's the flight. That contains an awful lot of dioxins, okay? An awful lot of toxic stuff, all right? And, and, and that is shipped off to Germany, okay? And buried in the salt mines there, like with the nuclear waste that they put there. So, so we're creating a monster. So like landfill was a big problem, but this is like kind of almost really condensed Land landfill or concentrated Land landfill. As I said, if we recycle the organics, there's nothing left. What about the meat and things like that? Well, forgive me, so we can, we can manage that really, really well. There's not a problem with us. When people die, okay, we bury them. Is there a problem with people being buried? That's organic material being put in the burial. Once it's done properly, uh, we don't have a problem. There's no pollution. It subsumes back into the earth, turns to dust, and the whole thing, the cycle of life goes on again. All right? When we burn it, we create a toxic mass that we have to deal with and sit on it, and there's nothing more we can do with it. Okay, I'll, I'll, but it'll be a cost of fortune to, neut to neutralize all that stuff there. It'll cost a fortune. 
this is not uh, this is on a different topic but i was just thinking about it last night what are your thoughts on cremation then is that turning the human body into something bad uh, again it's organic once you know what goes in it's very easy to control what's coming out but it's organic but okay and it's a way that you're dealing with ash left over but we're burning we're creating co2 we're just going to add to the to the global warming effort that's all it's a bit of carbon what's carbon we're, we're we're made of carbon, carbon yeah. and water. Uh, we, we, we don't have a huge amount of heavy metals in us, so hopefully, um, yeah. hopefully at the yes. moment. So, so it's relatively neutral. It's a bit of carbon in, in the air, but you know, toxic waste incineration is a whole different. We don't know totally don't, what we're also, burning, yeah. and obviously okay, yeah. what's going to go up into the air and what's going to go into the mm. into the ash down the bottom. Are you worried about the future the way that I am? <laughs> no, because eventually humankind being innovative and finding problems. Once people are educated, this is the beauty of education, once people are educated, they're not fooled or they can't be fooled for very long. And I think this is one of the things, this is why Chase has been so successful right up to now, is because ordinary people have got on board and they've decided, hey, listen, we're being sold a pup here. We're being sold a real toxic pup and we're going to stop it. There's just and it was wonderful to see at the oral hearing for four and a half weeks in in Carrigaline, ordinary people who took an interest in what was happening, and the evidence they provided at that oral hearing was amazing, and it was very very difficult for the experts on the other side of the table to refute what they were saying, and it was just it just came across a real good community effort to try and stop this. And the more it went on, the better it became because more and more people are now realizing that incineration is not the way to go for the future. I think going back to your question though, is it too late to stop? Uh, In know, this particular I, I have this unfortunate, sad feeling that, that it is certainly from a technical point of view, the order, it's, it's a done deal. Whether it chases lawyers and barristers do a miracle and prove that due process was not followed properly and that, that the, the, the judges will give, you know, uh, disprove it from that perspective. We can only hope, but um, it, that's purely down to legal. Um, unfortunately, this, this ship has sailed by, on board Pernola by approving it, despite the fact that, you know, as Jody says, the evidence is so contrary to it. And, we're under, and, and it's only been approved from a historical legacy infrastructure bill, which is not fit for purpose anymore. It's not modern. It doesn't. Ireland has gone way beyond it now. It's in, we're, we're almost as good as other countries in recycling and we'll get better. Uh, and, and, and we're just, we've been approved of this, this monster from, from a legacy that we don't need anymore. And uh, it's... It seems to me just a very quick, poor solution to a common problem. That if we were to sit down and actually really think about it and get innovative ways and there wasn't so many top people who are going to benefit from this. Mm -hmm. People in Engineers Ireland, okay, who are pushing this because they see it as jobs for the boys because RPS are very involved in Engineers for Ireland. And they're the people pushing this. And Rumble are another company in, uh, in Copenhagen as well that are pushing incinerators throughout the world. But as I say, to the dinosaur industry, this was done 100, 120 years ago, a million years ago, cavemen, that's how they took care of their waste. And uh, here we are in the 21st century, and we're still talking about burning waste and polluting the atmosphere, polluting our bodies and, and, and everything. And, and surely we have a better way of doing it in this day and age, yeah.
I have one last question for you because I think that you're both, I suppose, very brave to take a stance on something that you believe in. I find it hard sometimes to do that. You know, I find it like, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to just... Well, well, you know, it's our future and it's our kids' future and it's our kids' future's futures, okay, forever, gone down forever. And to have this stuff lying around, okay, in toxic burial pits. Mm -hmm. So they're saying that, oh, we shouldn't have okay burying we shouldn't have landfill and all this like this has to go into landfill all this stuff is going to be buried somewhere all right and now we've created a monster because now we have to really segregate this and sit down like nuclear waste we have to sit on it for hundreds of years to make sure it doesn't leach out mm -hmm. to take care of it so we're creating a monster it's it's it's, it's going to be a very expensive monster as well because let's face it once people started getting in and hooked on incineration, a quick way to get rid of all the waste, it's going to get worse and worse and worse, and prices go up, mm -hmm. all right? Because now they'll have a monopoly on waste disposal, and once people have a monopoly on waste disposal, we're, we're, we'll be paying through the nose for it eventually, through the nose. So I mean, the, the, the tragedy is, is that, you know, Cork has become such a, a, a model of, of, of green solutions, you know, of a new society, a fantastic new renovation project from the, the slag heap from Irish Steel and Spike Island, these shining research centres which are, you know, kind of a shining light of Irish innovation and, and the knowledge economy. And then this could go up, which you just make a, you know, I think a farce of it really. There times you were like, I'm just going to leave it alone. It's just got too complicated. It's taking up it's too it's much of my time. It's, it's just not complicated. It's very simple. Mm. It's very, very simple. We have a waste product here that can be recycled, reused in most cases. But what we do is we get it, we stick it into the back of a lorry, it's squashed into the back of a lorry, it's dumped out into the incinerator hopper and goes straight into it to burning it. Mm -hmm. All right, so. That's a very quick and easy, but what I'm saying of what I showed to you, what we're producing is a monster. Right? Instead of buying viable ways where we can recycle and reuse, and we're talk, everybody's talking about it now in Europe and Holland, they're trying to do it as much as possible, okay, to put into a cycle economy. So get everything recycled all the time back into nature. Just like human bodies when you burn it, or when, when they're buried, okay, they're buried, they feed the worms, worms die, whatever it is, we put carbon back into the earth, the earth is fertilized, it grows more food for us, and the whole thing becomes a cycle, yeah? And that's what we need. I think you were asked, you, you asked earlier, is um, what happens next? Yeah. Uh, if, what's the worst case scenario? Well, if the worst case scenario, which is that, 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 that the judges approve of it, or that legal case wasn't strong enough, I think we've been informed that almost the day afterwards, Indigor is ready with, with their bulldozers to move in. Mm -hmm. It's going to take one and a half years, only they're really going to build up very fast. You saw how they said fast the incinerator with that in Dublin. Uh, both the construction noise and, uh, is going to be incredible there. That, that, that's a barrier enough alone that then once that chimney goes for their first first trial, you know, I've already said that uh, you know, my position is I, I have to go elsewhere and I think it's going to be you know, a very unattractive part of Ireland to live in for for families, for for academics, for, for university institutions that, that you know, should be in clean environments. Yeah. A clean, yeah, modern, modern technological innovative smart society. Smart society. Smart society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's you know, it's gonna be an awful shame and very sad and embarrassing.
Next time on the podcast, I would love the opportunity to speak to someone from Indipur or someone who is pro-incineration and would like to bring their ideas to the conversation. If you'd like to be involved or have any suggestions for people who would take part, I would love to hear them at info at thebitacademy.com. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Our Future and we'll see you next time.